people remember the peaks, but forget that a lot of years within ufology there has been times, you know, when there hasn't really been that much going on. This year kind of typifies that to a great extent. So I don't think it's like necessarily a downside. It's just something where we, in the past, you know, as history goes on, we tend to forget those quiet years, of which has actually been, you know, quite a lot. Ladies and gentlemen, And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Here this week, we're coming at you with a special two-part dual guest episode And what is this massive discussion that we're unleashing on you over the course of the next few days? That is our 2009 year in review in the world of ufology with our esteemed guests, two of the leading minds in all of esoterica, the UFO mystics themselves, Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern, both really good friends of mine, and I'm very excited to look back on the past year in the world of ufology. As I've already sort of mentioned and beaten to death a little bit here at the beginning, it is a two-part episode. We ended up going three hours plus on this discussion on the past year as well as the past decade in Esoterica. i got to tip my hat to Greg and Nick. They really went above and beyond for me here on this episode. Here in part one, we're going to be examining an overall look at 2009. It was kind of a down year for UFO studies, having looked at All the big news of the year, I was pretty down on the year, even more so than last year. And I was kind of down on last year. At least last year had some outlandish and wild hoaxes. This year, it was kind of uh, lukewarm in general. Nonetheless, there were a number of stories that created a buzz, not just in the UFO research community, but as well as in the mainstream media. I've cherry-picked those from the web, and we're going to be talking about them. And Nick and Greg are really going to provide some remarkable perspective to these stories We had a lot of fun dissecting these stories and kind of just beating the crap out of 2009. So it's uh, quite a fun interview, as I said, with two of my good friends, Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. Here are the stories you're going to be hearing about in part one. Bonus points to those folks who remember all these stories, because some of them were kind of obscure, even though they were the hot thing in ufology at the time. The UK wind turbine, quote-unquote, UFO of January, that was really big. The file releases of Denmark and Brazil, the Morristown, New Jersey UFO hoax from the early part of this year, the failed disclosure predictions for July in France and November in America, the Google UFO logo mania of September, I remember that one actually pretty well, the Socorro UFO hoax allegations from this past fall, and we're going to remember the lives of some of the esoteric figures that we lost in 2009, like contactee Howard Menger. UK UFO researcher Tony Dodd, Fortean legend John Keel, ufology legend Dick Hall, and Socorro UFO witness Lonnie Zamora. Let me sort of envelop the in-house note here into the beginning of the show. This is part one. It's coming at you 
towards the end of the year here. We're going to get the next episode out to you, hopefully within the next 48 hours or so. So keep an eye out for part two coming at you this coming weekend at BOA. Now, normally we usually do the preview for next week's episode at the end of the program, but since this is a two-parter and we're doing it over the course of a few days, I kind of want to put it all under one umbrella. So let me give you a quick, really quick overview of what we're going to be talking about in part two, which you'll be able to hear via BOA in just a few short days. For starters, we're going to remember esteemed esoteric researcher Mac Tonys, who passed away this past October and was really, really good friends with Nick and Greg. Additionally, we're going to discuss the cancellation of UFO hunters, the Vatican endorsement of ETs, the UK MOD UFO desk being shut down, and the Norway spiral. The second half of part two, we're going to cover the decade of the aughts, mostly the big trends of the past 10 years in ufology and the world of esoterica at large. We're going to look at how it stacks up against the other decades as far as UFO research, the rise of exopolitics in the last 10 years, the displacement of ufology by 9-11 and ghost hunting as the perceived most popular field in esoterica, the rise of cryptozoology into the quasi-mainstream level, and how the internet shaped esoterica. All in all, it's over three hours with really two people who have an uncanny ability to take a step back and examine the world of ufology and esoterica from a whole different level Greg Bishop, Nick Redfern, the UFO Mystics, in an episode, two episodes for the history books as we shut the door on 2009 and welcome in 2010. In the interest of time, we're going to skip the bios. Greg and Nick have both been on the show numerous times, and their bios are listed at the BOA website under this show page and all their different appearances on the program. Let me give out the websites, though, for folks who are unfamiliar with Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern and want to find out more about them and from them. Together they post at the website www.ufomystic.com, ufomystic.com. Pretty simple, easy to find, always something fascinating posted at UFO Mystic. Greg Bishop, you can find out more from him at radiomysterioso.com. That's his outstanding podcast. If you're listening to BOA Audio, you definitely want to check out Greg Bishop's Radio Mysterioso as well. I enjoy it. It's one of the few esoteric podcasts that I'll take time out of my busy schedule to listen to. And Nick Redfern, you want to really check out the hub for Nick Redfern, www.nickredfern.com. That's pretty easy to find. That'll sort of direct you to all the different areas and blogs that Nick maintains for the many different genres that he researches. Nick Redfern is a renaissance man of esoterica, and that's why he's part of the Year in Review episode of BOA Audio. So without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on December 28, 2009. Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop talking about the year in ufology for 2009 on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 2009 Year in Review episode of BOA Audio. We're also going to look back on the decade of the aughts, which we'll be wrapping up here uh, over this week. Much like we did last year, we're bringing back the most feared tag team in all of UFO studies, Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern, the UFO mystics, both really good friends of mine. I consider them probably my best two friends in the world of esoterica, so it's definitely going to be a jam session style of BOA audio. We're going to have a lot of laughs, I'm sure of that, and uh, a lot of fourth wall smashing observations on the world of esoterica, so we're going to delve into 
the stories of 09 and then, uh, you know, some of the big changes in the world of Esoterica that have happened in the last 10 years because it's been quite a decade. And so without any further ado, let's just get going on this thing. Welcome back to the show, Greg Bishop. You uh, retain the most appearances ever by a BOA Audio guest. You just narrowly beat out Stan Friedman here with this one. So. <laughs> yeah, he was on, I think we were tied because he was on again recently. Yeah, yeah. He tied it up last week, and now you've you've bumped him back out of the uh, of the top spot. And of course, Nick Redfern, author of the amazing new book Contactees, is back on the show as well. Nick, welcome back to BOA Audio. Hey guys, thanks a lot. All right. Well, as I was saying to Greg while we were waiting to get going here, I really kind of felt like 2009. I shit all over 2008 last year because it was a lot of hoaxes and a lot of just bad news. But it kind of got worse this year with less hoaxes and just more – just wasn't really anything happening. I felt like it was kind of a down year uh, with the exception of a lot of noteworthy deaths, two very prominent disclosure claims that never came to fruition, and a lot of uh, small setbacks. Maybe they weren't so small. We'll see, I guess, like the, uh, the MOD UFO desk closing down and UFO hunters being canceled um, and that Morristown, New Jersey – UFO hoax. So it seemed like it was kind of a crappy year for the UFO scene. Uh, not so much that uh, bad news, but almost just no news. Um, you know, when the biggest story of the year, one of them was a, a rehash of the Socorro case. Uh, that kind of tells you all you need to know about 2009. But I know that of anyone I know in the world of Esoterica, Nick Redford can shine the most nastiest of turds. So I ask him first. <laughs> I've never heard it quite put like that before. <laughs> put that on uh, business cards, Nick. Yeah, that's, I think I may do that. That'll be my motto from now on. You have whole turd polisher. <laughs> so I know that you can you can put a positive spin on on 2009, or at least give us some perspective. That's why I like having you guys on. Uh, first of all, Nick can see the bright side and everything, and Greg usually can give us sort of a, <laughs> an alternative take on, on things as well. And, and you both have the ability to smash the fourth wall quite a bit and sort of take yourselves out of being prominent UFO researchers or esoteric researchers and actually look at this thing from afar like we like to do here on the show. So I guess we'll start with Nick. I mean, what's your just general impression of 09 as we, as we close the book on it? Well, you know, I mean, I would broadly agree with what you, you said, Tim, that there hasn't really, other than sort of the downsides to the subject, I don't think there's been any major significant upswings. But, you know, I, I don't actually think there is anything particularly positive about that. But what I would say is that, you know, if you look back into the history of the subject, there were years that were particularly noteworthy, like 52 with the Washington wave, 67, which there was just general wave, and then 73, all across the United States, you know, there was a massive amount of sightings. And I think people remember the peaks, but forget that a lot of years within ufology, there has been times, you know, when there hasn't really been that much going on. You know, it, I think, and I think this year kind of typifies that to a great extent. So I don't think it's like necessarily a downside. It's just something where we in the past, you know, as history goes on, we tend to forget those quiet years, of which has actually been, you know, quite a lot. So I think, you know, whatever lies at the heart of the UFO mystery, it isn't dictated by every year manifesting to a greater level. You know, that's, yeah. that's one of the things that we find. It's very unpredictable. 
you know, you could look at 52 and think that was the impetus for a, an invasion or a disclosure. It never came. You could you could have said the same at 73. You know, wow, it's really building up. Next couple of years, it goes quiet. And so I think all I can say is, yeah, this year was a quiet year, but in the bigger, broader spectrum of ufology, it's like, so what? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm almost like looking forward more to the decade discussion than the 09 discussion because it's going to be a lot of uh, depressing news that we're going to be talking about. But uh, what did you think, Greg, of 09? Same thing as Nick. No. Um, <laughs> no. The, you know, Nick's point's well taken with the, the perspective. But the um, thing about uh, UFO study or whatever, people paying attention to it now, um, I think what we're doing partially on this, you know, program and others, you know, we've done with the year in review are looking at things that kind of got out of the, you know, the fan, the, the fan base, the UFO people that are just into UFOs and got out into the general public, which is something that's a bigger deal because then, you know, there's more of an awareness and that really didn't happen this year really at all. Um, and the other thing is the way that uh, UFO study is now, we've got the internet, and 10 years ago we really didn't have it that much. I mean, I don't. People only really started using it in probably between 2000 and 2005. So sometimes we tend to think there's a lot more going on than there was, just because communication's so much better, and something happens and everybody knows about it within hours. Right. Whereas you know, some cases. You know, people wouldn't read about it or hear about it till days, weeks, months, years later, or even realize it was that important. Now you've got, you know, hundreds and thousands sometimes of people discussing a case and the ramifications and what's going on right now immediately, practically. And, um, you know, for my entire life of reading weird stuff and being into it, this is, you know, a, a lot different than it used to be. And... I think that's what—that's the main thing that makes a difference in UFO study and in, in anything. It's just the gathering and the dissemination and the uh, communication of information, of raw data. It's just—it's uh, exploded in the last decade or so. And so, since we've got a bigger magnifying glass, it seems like you know there's not some blockbuster coming along every every two or three years or even every five or six years yeah. um, on the level of like a Lonnie Zamora or a Travis Walton or something like that. In fact, it's hard for me to think of anything in the last 10 years except for maybe the Stephenville thing. So it's just, you know, it, it's, it's a matter of perspective, I think. And um, until something really different happens, I think that's the way it's going to stay. You know, more sightings, yeah, I guess people will care about more sightings. But most people won't, just UFO people will. So that's, that's just the way it goes. It's just a great, a great part of the public just doesn't really care about it. And when they do, that's a big story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, I really have culled from UFO mystics sort of the stories that did break out into the mainstream uh, this year, as well as stories that are prevalent to us here in the field. Um, and you'll be – I think the listeners will be kind of surprised maybe just that there really weren't that many breakout stories, and the ones that were were like you know kind of awful. So we'll, we'll, they died. They died very quickly. They just didn't have the staying power. You exactly. Know? That's true. That's true. I didn't even think of that, but that's that's absolutely right. A lot of them sort of were big for like a week, and then it was you know they died out pretty quickly. So and they weren't even that really that good to begin with. So 
Well, look what happened to me in the last two or three months. I've hardly been posting anything because I just, you know, nothing's happening. Everybody's saying the same thing, and I just don't really care right now. You know, it, it, when something happens or I get a new idea or, you know, the, the book ideas I'm working on come out or whatever, maybe I'll, I'll have more to say, but it just, it's, it's affected me too. There's nothing really going on. Yeah, it's strange. It's really strange. And and to combine that with what you said about the internet, like it seems like there should be, but uh, it's a lot of filler and, and, and stuff this year, it seems. Uh, the only significant thing that happened in the last couple of months is besides our friend Mac Tony is passing away is Nick's book. As far as I'm concerned, I mean, I haven't heard about anything else really. Well, we got a couple of weird little ones towards the end of the year that we'll talk about that were kind of stories, so we'll uh, – Yeah, you'll have to remind me. I will. <laughs> All right, so let's move. We'll get going into these events because some of them we're going to fly right through, I'm sure. The first big UFO story that I kind of picked up on for the year was this UK wind turbine story that was like popular for about 10 days, and then it got – turned out that they said it was like a loose blade or something on the wind turbine, but it really sort of – reflected an interesting sort of uh, way it was covered over in the UK because they like went crazy for it and immediately were saying UFO when it didn't really, I never really could gather exactly why they thought it was a UFO. So I'm not sure what to say about this or what to even ask you guys, but it's kind of a forgettable story. I barely remembered it when, I didn't remember it when I was putting together a list originally, but then I looked back on what you guys had at UFO Mystic and then I was like, oh yeah, I remember wind turbine mania. Uh, of early January. So, do either of you remember this at all? Yeah, I remember it, but I kind of remember it for all the wrong reasons because it was just, you know, it was like a storm in a teacup, so to speak. I think one of the things that this, that case kind of typifies is the way in which <clears throat> an incident, which, you know, I actually don't think there was any conspiracy to hide anything significant at all. I think it just got blown out of proportion. And I think it kind of typifies, unfortunately, one particular aspect of the UFO subject that is quite prevalent, the way in which a story breaks, if you like, suddenly, and the people who are investigating it, or the way it's been invested, not necessarily the people, I should say, but the media particularly, get on the back of it. The media whip it up into a frenzy. It's reported here, there, and everywhere before the people who'd actually do an investigation at grassroots level get finished with it. And that's kind of what Greg was, you know, hitting on with the internet nowadays, that we all get to hear about it, but unfortunately, sometimes we, I think we actually get to hear about it too soon because it doesn't give chance for the full investigation to be done. And the investigators who are looking at it actually, you know, the more they delved into it, the more it seemed to have a prosaic explanation. So I think, you know, although the internet's a great tool, there is something to be said for the idea that, hey, you know, let's, let's kind of play, if, if it's going to get out there quickly, let's not go overboard with the story let's you know do it step by step and not have it just thrust into the general public to where it looks like afterwards we look like you know we didn't do the full investigation to start with you know rather than the other way around so yeah. um you know that's sort of my take on it anything so you can really help what people are going to say or what they want to write about or what an editor says that some writer should push or whatever there's, there's no real way around that i don't think um People are going to say what they're going to say. I mean, I, I think Nick has probably had the experience, and maybe you too, Tim, of um, doing an interview and then, or being on a show or something like that. And then you look at the show and you, you think, "That's not what I said at all." But that's 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 me saying those words because they've edited it to, 
fit some preconceived idea about whatever the producer or director wants. And I think that goes on in any, you know, any kind of news reporting or anybody talking about anything, reporting on anything or telling you about something, their own spin goes on it. There's nothing really you can do about it except possibly, you know, uh, continue with your research and make sure that you've done it right and that you're satisfied with it and it holds up to scrutiny. But about the wind turbine thing, I I thought, it, yeah, it was kind of a big non-story too. What I thought was interesting, which was kind of reported at first and nobody said anything about it later, was people said they actually did see some things flying around. And those were, it was ignored, or somebody said it was plasma balls or something. It may very well have been. Or some big thing that looked like a giant electric octopus or something, somebody said, which could also be, you know, a kind of a uh, some sort of ball lightning thing or something that's engendered by having all those windmills in one place at one time spinning around in, in a lightning storm. I, I don't know what kind of, you know, what the, how that affects the, the, the local environment. It, it may do something to it. I don't know. Um, but, you know, for, the, for those reasons, it remains interesting to me. Yes, you know, the thing looked like something had hit it or that the uh, – not hit it, but it, it, the, the uh, blade looked like it, it – they said it was just broke. I mean, it, it just had uh, metal fatigue in the bolts that were holding the blade on and it fell off and it hit another blade or something like that. Yeah, so what? But the, the, the point was that there were some weird, you know, some weird-ass sightings right beforehand and some strange effects in the atmosphere, which I think are interesting. Not, not to say that they're UFOs or anything like that. They're just a wider part of the, the you know, the paranormal universe, and it, I think it should still be interesting. And nobody ever really concentrated on that part that I know of. I mean, maybe somebody followed up on it in Britain, and, and Nick might know about it. I don't know. Well, yeah, just to follow up, not so much specifically on those sightings. I don't know too much about the investigation of those, but you know, this is this is kind of what I mean. That the fact that yes, there was something, you know, some genuinely interesting sightings to begin with, but then it all got kind of locked into this thing with the turbine, with the wind turbines, and you know, it was almost like from day one we're expected to conclude that it's all connected because that's what the story was. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I mean about, you know, the, the grassroots level, letting them complete their investigation and then let's find out before, you know, the rumor mill's churning all over the place and then part of the story collapses because it seems to have a prosaic explanation and then everybody forgets, like, as Greg just brought up, the genuinely anomalous parts. So, you know, I think that's that's an important thing to remember is that, you know, the, the issue of, of completing the investigation so one bit that may collapse doesn't eclipse the the fact that what kicked the story off in the first place, shall we say. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right, so uh, we've given more time to the UK wind turbine story than it probably deserves, so we'll <laughs> we'll move to the next one. Well, it brings up other things, too. You know, it's valuable, especially how Nick brought up, you know, jumping on things before there's any uh, proper research done. Yeah. You can't really help that. I mean, the, the, if he's talking about UFO people, people that are interested in the subject, yeah, I agree with him. You know, don't jump to a conclusion no matter what it is. But people love to do that. So, you know, there's not too much you can do about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the point that you guys were both making, too, that sounds like once the UFO thing got disproven, then they just stopped looking into it at all. And they left all that other stuff that you found interesting on the table, probably. So it's like that yeah. didn't help anybody at all either. Mm-hmm. All right, now the next story I'll also group in with another story here from uh, 09, and they're kind of of the same ilk, so we'll uh, just do them together. Denmark releases all UFO files. That was the end of January, and then in the beginning of May, Brazil declassified its UFO files. 
find it kind of interesting just that it's getting kind of blasé now that these countries are releasing UFO files. Uh, I think, you know, four or five years ago, either one of these stories would be like one of the biggest stories of the year or something, and now they're just sort of like piling on this ongoing international UFO file release thing that's happening. So, um, and it almost might go into, you know, the decade interview, because it seems like that's been one of the biggest stories of the decade, but do either of you guys look at this information, and has anything good come out of it, or is it sort of more of the same of what we've been getting from all these other different countries, where they just put out UFO reports, and it's like, thanks, but we have like 100,000 plus UFO reports now, so we don't need any more, thank you. Well, uh, I mean, I can tell you something about the, the, the Danish reports, is that, you know, they what's interesting is that they actually do quite closely parallel what's being released, you know, in other countries, uh, where you have a significant number of reports from the general public, which could frankly be anything from satellites to little green men from <laughs> Venus, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, where there's no real answers, but Mr. Jones saw a blue light two weeks last Wednesday or whatever, that sort of thing. And amongst those reports where you're not really able to do anything with them because of the time frame and they're so vague, there's a few interesting military reports, you know, pilot reports, radar reports, but nothing substantial and no evidence that it's all leading to some hidden MJ-12 type group, just a bunch of guys who collected the reports, were slightly baffled by the fact that they realized something a little bit odd was going on, but it wasn't attacking us, but it wasn't landing and saving the rainforests either. <laughs> yeah. And it just went away as mysteriously as it appeared, or the, the, you know, the, the incidents occurred as mysteriously as they finished. And the relevant agencies logged the reports. You know, that's pretty much what the British MOD do, what Blue Book did. Some of them have continued, some of them washed their hands of it because I suspect the phenomenon wasn't acting in a way which the military is used to acting when it comes to a potential hostile nation or whatever. Now, as for the the motivation for releasing files, you know, on the one hand, you could go down the full-on conspiracy path that all these nations are releasing their files purely and simply because it's part of some preparation process. At the other end, the complete other end, you have the argument, which is being put forward by a lot of people, particularly in the UK, is that because, as statistics show, the UFO requests are the biggest, it's the biggest subject requested under the terms of the British government's Freedom of Information Act. And literally hundreds of man hours are being taken up just responding to sometimes, you know, the same requests from hundreds of different people, you know, everybody asking for the Rendlesham Forest file, etc. Um, so the MOD took the idea of, well, let's put all the files out there, then that'll free up everybody requesting the files. Yeah. They can all get them, you know, at the same place, download them as PDFs or whatever. So, you know, on the one hand, you can look at the bureaucratic, sensible approach, if you like, of releasing the files versus the, the real, you know, conspiracy angle at the other end of preparing the public or you know no pun intended you go with the gray area somewhere in between you know we could argue that all night but i think all i think all the files are ever going to tell us is that the government knows something but it's never going to really the files are released at least they're never going to lead any further than that greg your thoughts yeah well pretty much the same as nick but then in the larger picture um 
uh, you were asking about all these different countries releasing files. And like Nick said, they all release the same damn thing, it yeah. seems like. It's a report that was followed up on. It's either unexplained or explained. But it's not, you know, if it's unexplained, you still don't know what the hell it is. Um, and that's, you know, that's the position of every government that decides, it seems, that decides to release their UFO files is, um, yeah, we looked into it, we didn't know what it was, and it wasn't, it didn't seem that important to national defense, so here's the files, have, you know, have a nice day, go, go, to, go to town, have fun. And um, it just seems like if there is something that somebody knows, um, that's not going to be released. I mean, it's, it be, you know, as Nick and I have both said, I think what's not being released is ignorance of what the phenomenon is, where it comes from, or how to control it. That's the secret. That's not in a, I don't think that's in a file anywhere. I think that's in people's heads. I think that's in the opinions of people that have, you know, dealt with this phenomenon. Now, yeah, well, maybe there could be captured grays and all this other stuff. There's no way to prove any of that. But we do know, as, you know, just from looking at this for years and years and years and years, and talking to people and interviewing witnesses and all this other stuff, that something is going, you know, like Carl Jung said, something is seen but no one knows what. And that's, that's how I think the governments are, too, at the very basic core of their, you know, whatever the secret is. The secret is the ignorance, and that, that's not something that's in a file. So they can release all the files they want, but uh, all they're going to be is, is, is uh, showing that there's an interest or was an interest and that they, they, I guess they monitor the situation just like you and you and I and everybody listening to this does just to see if they can get a clue about what the hell is going on and how to get a handle on it or if we even can at this point in our history. So I, I think until, until people evolve different ways of thinking on a mass scale, um, it's still going to be a mystery, and that's what the government files are going to show. Yeah, the only other uh, sort of conspiratorial angle I could take on this would just be that maybe – they keep releasing all these files, and since it never sort of like solves the mystery, maybe it's sort of to like dampen the UFO mystery in a way where people can look at it and sort of be like, look at all these countries that release their files, and there's nothing to it, obviously, because, you know, we would have the answer by now if there was, because all these countries looked at it and they gave away all their files and there's nothing in them, sort of thing. Well, if there is an answer and there's no way to control it or keep people from being afraid of it or think that there's more power somewhere else that can do anything at once uh, over and above the economic and, and political power on this planet, I don't think we'll ever really know about it. Or, or, you know, yeah. which is why Whitley Strieber said, I think that this information is coming from the visitors from the, from the bottom up in a, in a very weird way. And I think there's a, there's a really good case to be made for that. All right, now we go into the first of uh, what will turn out to be many noteworthy deaths this year here in the world of uh, esoterica. And Greg wrote the obit on UFO Mystic for this guy, and I'm sure Nick's going to want to say some stuff too. Uh, Howard Menger, uh, noteworthy contactee, passed away uh, early March. So I guess, Greg, tell people a little bit about Howard Menger and his role in the history of uh, this whole sordid field of esoterica. Well, Nick has more exposure to his uh, information a lot more recently. However, um, <laughs> from, <laughs> what I, uh, from memory, Howard Menger was Menger, Menger, Menger. I can't remember how he pronounces it on the shows that he's, I've heard him on. Um, was uh, not really one of the first contactees. He kind of, kind of picked it up as, as, as the movement went on in the, in the 50s. He was a sign painter from New Jersey. That was his business. And I and he was in World War II. He was a veteran. Um, 
And he wrote a book called From Outer Space to You, where he said that he had contact with space people from when he was a child. Um, the uh, There's one weird part of his story, which uh, I think Nick got into in the book, which was uh, he many years later, uh, uh, after he'd been on the circuit for a while, he appeared on the Long John Neville show, which um, some people may know about, and said that the whole thing was made up and that... Uh, he had done it as part of an experiment for the U.S. Army in psychological warfare. And then he recanted that later and said he said that because somebody told him to. And um, as the years went on, he, he kept showing up at UFO conventions and eventually uh, just stopped. But he, he was going up into the 1980s and carting around um, uh, free energy motors and anti-gravity things that he said the space people told, told him how to build. However, none of them really seemed to work very well except when he did get them working, it was just, you know, uh, uh, like uh, stuff that, uh, how those magnetic levitation trains work. It was just, you know, uh, similarly charged uh, magnetic fields that would repel each other, and you'd have little things floating up off the floor on sticks and things like that. <laughs> uh, that part was kind of pathetic. But, the, the you know, the, the, the main story uh, behind him I thought was really interesting in, the, in, in that he was one of the few contactees that said that he had had contacts from when he was a child. And there was, <laughs> strangely enough, there were some weird sexual-type overtones in some of his early contacts, too, from when, when he was a, a child and a teenager. But he never really made that explicit. Um, I guess people didn't do that back then. And uh, he was married, and he, uh, he uh, met... Uh, uh, what was Connie Menger's original name? I can't remember her name. But he met her at uh, a, a uh, contactee gathering and realized that he said he realized that she was some woman he used to be married to on the planet Venus. So he divorced his wife and married her. And they had a very happy marriage, apparently, um, uh, right up to the end. Um, although I, apparently uh, Menger was a bit cantankerous and, and sometimes got moody and got hard to get along with. But seems like uh, Connie was very uh, patient and loving with him. And they raised, I guess, a you know, nice family, and the kids went off to do whatever. I don't think they really had anything to do with their father's contactee stuff. But, uh, you know, he's another one of those, you know, spiritual message, harmless kind of people that just was uh, worried about us blowing ourselves up in the 1950s and 60s like everybody else was. Okay, yeah, Connie Menger's uh, main name, Weber. Mm-hmm. That's it, right, right. No relation to Alfred Weber that we know of. <laughs> no, no, I think Weber, Alfred Weber is R-E-B-R-E, and hers was R-E-B-B-E-R. Okay. W-E-B-B-E-R, yeah. Nick, anything to add to that? I know you obviously wrote the uh, Contact East book, so this guy probably is uh, someone who's been on your radar for a while. Yeah, I mean, Greg pretty much excellently summarized and accurately summarized who Menger was, and, you know, he's his stories, claims, etc. Um, what I would say is that, you know, I th- or what I would add, I should say, is that I think Menger, like a lot of the people from that period, typifies the definitive contactee. You know, there were some who were under the radar that have long been forgotten and sometimes for quite justifiable reasons. <laughs> but he was one of the ones that, I suppose, when people think of the contactee movement, you know, they think of Adamski, then Van Tassel, Williamson, it goes down, and, and Menger's, you know, within the sort of the top five or six that people tend to think of, I think, who are, at least people are aware of that, uh, you know, that long-gone era of ufology. Um, and I think, you know, he typifies the definitive character aspect of, of the contactee field that is, 
I suppose, quite starkly missing, you know, in a lot of UFO witnesses and experiences today. You know, that they were definitive characters and, um, you know, for in some cases for good reasons and <laughs> some cases for bad reasons. Uh, sometimes the line was blurred. But Menger was definitely one of these that, you know, as Greg said, he told the classic tale of peace and love. And, and like a lot of the contactees, you know, whether he was speaking truthfully, whether he was, you know, being deceitful or whether it was somewhere between the two. And, you know, he didn't even realize it. I don't know. But like a lot of these people, you know, his life was transformed and he went from just being, I shouldn't say just being a sign painter, no, nothing wrong with being a sign painter, but, you know, his life was radically changed from one situation to another. And I, I find that interesting that many of the contactees reported that, yet a lot of UFO witnesses, you know, certainly abductees report similar scenarios, but a lot of UFO witnesses, you know, today it's more blasé, perhaps it's, you know, we're, we're more open to the subject, but back then it was a real transformative situation i think you know menger kind of exemplifies that that angle of the subject if you like yeah yeah it sounds like the kind of thing uh you almost wish you could have talked to him like in the last few years because maybe then he would have <laughs> opened up a little bit more about yeah. what was really going on back then mm -hmm. with the long john nebel thing and, and a lot of this other stuff maybe um i haven't finished contact e so uh, and we're going to do our own like sort of separate well, why not? Interview. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas, dude. I've been busy with Christmas. <laughs> um, so, but I'll, I'll have to sort of pick your brain on that sort of thing uh, when, when we do yeah. that. But it would be interesting sort of to hear from if the ones that are still around, really, if uh, if they open up a little bit more about what, you know, a little more behind the scenes sort of thing that was going on yeah, back then. There's not many of them left now. All right, now I'll turn this one over to you, Nick, because you're from the U.K. Tony Dodd passed away the end Ooh. of March. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about Tony Dodd. I didn't know too much about him, uh, but I know that he was kind of a force over there in the UK UFO scene. Yeah, he was. Tony, um, I, I met Tony on several occasions and got to know him quite well because he was the director of investigations at a UFO magazine, the, the English UFO magazine that Graham Birdsall, who died in 2003, um, published with his brother Mark. And I'd known Mark and Graham since probably about the mid-1980s. Um, as Graham once put in his magazines, uh, he said, I even knew Nick when he had hair. So <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I'd, I'd known Graham and Mark um, since about the mid-80s when their magazine was literally like a little stapled, um, you know, letter set type production put together in, his, in Graham's mum's front room, I think, something like that. That was, you know, in the really newsletter fanzine type era. And Tony um, lived in the same county as Graham and Mark, which is North Yorkshire. And North Yorkshire, um, for those on this side of the Atlantic who may not be aware of it, it's sort of very much like a very countryside, typical English countryside, rolling hills and woods and fields and, you know, sheep and cows and little farms, that sort of thing. And Tony was a police officer and did a lot of night duty. And as you can imagine... You know, when you're driving around on patrol on places like the Yorkshire Moors, which looks like the Northern England equivalent of Dartmoor, where the Hound of the Baskervilles was set, you know, there's there's not a lot of light pollution. And Tony, uh, on one occasion in 1978, saw a flashing, uh, flying saucer, almost like a classic George Adamski type, even with the like the tripod undercarriage, if you like. <laughs> and um, 
obviously developed an interest in UFOs there, came on board with Graham and Mark and became the director of investigations of <clears throat> Quest International, which was the, the group that ultimately Graham and Mark set up to publish the magazine. And by the early 90s, you know, UFO magazine was a new stand magazine and it sort of really propelled it, you know, to, to huge levels across Britain. It was like the, you know, the premier newsstand magazine on, on UFOs. And, you know, they were being consulted left, right and centre by the media all the time. Huge conferences every year in the city of Leeds. And, um, and Tony, you know, uncovered a lot of data. He was travelled all around the world to conferences and lectures and would routinely write up reports in the magazine investigating cases. And, you know, that continued on until, you know, in the early part of this century, uh, when he, I think he's, you know, sort of went a bit quieter with it and put some things on the back burner. I guess, you know, retiring, not so much retiring from the subject, but, you know, not having such a huge workload. So, but, you know, in, in, certainly in the 80s and the 90s, he was a huge force in British ufology in terms of investigations. With the loss of Tony Dodd, and, and I know Graham Birdsall passed away quite a while ago, I guess what would you say the landscape of the UK UFO field is nowadays? It sounds like it might be sort of... Fractured. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's what be. I would say, pretty fractured. Um, you know, I get back there quite a lot. And, you know, I think one of the things is that if I get back, say, three times a year you notice the differences, I think, more than if you're just kind of coasting along within it all the time. Yeah. And one of the things I have found is that, you know, there's, there's well, really, there's no newsstand magazine on UFOs anymore in Britain. There's 14 Times and Paranormal magazine, which are both pretty much cover 40 on uh, across the board. Mm -hmm. But as far as UFOs are concerned, there's no real newsstand magazine a lot of the regional groups around the country where i used to speak at and you know have friends there they've all closed down a lot of them at least um and it's more like a, an internet discussion type thing whereas people are just you know tossing stories back and forth doing a few local investigations and one or two people trying to get some conferences up and running again but it's certainly you know a lot like people call it that quote the good old days yeah that's 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 how i won't say it's gone from britain i would just say that that's not what the scene is in britain right now okay all right we'll go to the next event here and uh this one was kind of pretty noteworthy uh the morristown new jersey ufo incident it happened in january but then in april it was uh proven to be a hoax created at the behest of skeptics of ufology or skeptics of the ufo phenomenon um and, and we'll turn it over here to greg because I have a feeling, you know, that he has something to say about this. It's kind of interesting in the sense that you hear a lot about hoaxes, but I can't think of too many, and I don't think we really ever got the full story on the Bigfoot body hoax from last year, but you don't hear from too many, you don't hear about too many sort of like malicious UFO hoaxes, but this one was definitely malicious um, and done sort of to embarrass everybody into UFOs. So um, I guess what's your take on the Morristown, New Jersey UFO hoax? Well, you know, I think they did, they did a valuable service, but they just did it with that the, the way that uh that uh fundamentalist type skeptics will do things, which is with this sneer and a laugh and a giggle and a you know, they try to make it sound like they're trying to do science a service, but what they're basically doing is leaving a bag of flaming shit on dog shit on a doorstep and running away. Um Although they did, they did come back. And they did it just to show that the people that came out and stomped it out and answered the door were idiots. But the funny thing is, um, there was a big fight uh, or whatever, a discussion 
uh, with the MUFON people from that area who investigated it and said right at the time, they said, this sounds like uh, flares attached to balloons. But I think that is almost exactly what they said. Yeah. And they went on. And then there was another group, I get another MUFON group in the in the Midwest in Ohio or something like that, that uh, followed it. And I think they had somebody come in. They had the people that did the hoax come and speak about it, but they they didn't speak about it as hoaxers. They spoke about it as um, experiencers or witnesses or whatever. Yeah. And so a big deal was made out of this that yeah, UFO people, you know, people that are into UFOs are idiots, and they'll they'll take anything in the sky as a as, a, as proof that there's extraterrestrials coming. And the funny thing is, the biggest group in the nation, MUFON, called it a hoax right <laughs> right off the bat, or possible, probable, you know, most yeah. likely a hoax. But of course, when they they admitted it on April first, uh, they put it out in the media. A lot of UFO, UFO people got mad at them and said that they were trying to make people look bad, but they were. They were trying to make people look bad, you know, and they were trying to make uh, a name for themselves, I believe, and skeptics. But the thing is, like any of these stories, if you look into it very closely, if you look into it a little more closely, like Nick said earlier, you find that it's not as simple as that. It's not some people hoax something and a bunch of idiots thought it was a UFO. What it was was some people hoaxed something, a bunch of people who really wanted to see UFOs in the sky and really wanted to believe that it was a genuine UFO sighting thought that's what it was or left the question open. And uh, some people who had a lot of experience with uh, looking at sightings and reports and all that said that it wasn't really worth their time to look into it anymore because it didn't really tell them anything and it was probably a hoax. So it, you know, it, 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 like uh, Keith Thompson's book, Angels and Aliens, it talks about the uh, the uh, mythology of U- UFO study and UFO, the spread of rumors and stories and all that. All the players were there, you know. Everybody played their part. The believers believed. The skeptics were skeptical, and uh, the the fallout was just, you know, bad taste, uh, you know, a bad taste in everybody's mouth on one side. Um, gloating on the other side, and a bunch of people in the public who did hear about the story, thinking, you know, be- because the news never really covered the uh, the MUFON angle, I don't think, in a wide way, thinking UFO people were just dumb people that want to see stuff in the sky. So, you know, in some ways, the skeptics are uh, fundamentalist skeptics. I'm sorry, I'm not going to say skeptics because true skeptics, I agree with. In a very real way, the uh, the the people's preconceptions, as long as it falls into the proper box for the preconception, that's the way it's going to be remembered. Not the not the person that took the time to to look at it objectively and try to try to make sense out of it. That nobody remembers those people. Yeah, and and that's unfortunate. But um, you know, I, I I thought it was kind of interesting that the UFO hunters people, I. I they said that it was a very exciting uh, uh, case and that they were going to cover it on a show, um, which they never did because the show was, I guess, time to air after the hoax was revealed. So I don't know. Would they have gone in and looked at it and said that, oh, no, it's a hoax and just not even worried about it or what? I, I have no idea. But there was also a big deal made out of William Burns and the people from the show thinking it was something that was worth their time when it really wasn't. And I think he came out with an explanation, which which I just uh, I, I just uh, said just now that they they thought it was real, and then they found out it was a hoax, but then they couldn't, you know, they they weren't going to air it 
or they thought it was a hoax before they were going to air it, so they didn't really plan to, and they only aired the part where he said it looked really interesting and, and that they were going to do a big show on it. And he had changed his opinion since then, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I remember him saying something about it, uh, the story and everything, but I forget now what his explanation was. I'm actually very proud because when I first posted the story, when it first broke, I said, sounds like balloons and flares. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I was impressed. I, said, I don't know, but it sounds like balloons and flares. <laughs> Anything to add to that, Nick, or you think we pretty much uh, nailed that one? Well, the one thing I would add is mm -hmm. that, you know, that Greg makes a valid point about where he said, you know, he felt it sounds like balloons and flares. The unfortunate thing is that, you know, neither the media nor the skeptics want to hear that from Greg. They want Greg to endorse, well, not necessarily Greg, they want somebody to endorse it and then say, gotcha. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. And, you know, it's unfortunate that there are people of that mindset who, you know, are in a gotcha type mode. You know, it's like, do they have nothing else to do than try and gotcha somebody? Do you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. That, that's what I don't understand. I mean, there are actually, you know, valuable studies have been done into the way in which people, misperception can occur. You know, for example, you can hoax something, like, for example, you know, you fly something in the sky and you ask 10 people to report what they saw. Even if it's a constructed thing with a blue light in one corner, green in another, and a red in the other, and a flashing white one in the middle, you're going to get a few discrepancies in the reports. And you could argue that you can learn some valuable things from that because, you know, arguably you have the original radio-controlled model or whatever it is that's flying around. You can see how and why people misperceived it. And maybe you can learn something from it. I don't endorse people doing that, but at the end of the day, you could learn something. The, the whole point of just like a gotcha approach, I just, I just don't get it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. You know, why don't you do something valuable with your time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Brought up the flaming bag of poop on the doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I tell I you one, one thing. thing. I, I sure as heck am excited. excited. We've, We've got, got about four, four hours, hours to the, to the new, new year, year, and so I think, think it's time to start it up. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Oh, and Brennan, Denise called, and she said she can't go out with you on New Year's Eve because she's not your girlfriend. She's your therapist. Is that what she said? Yeah. She's a rascal. All right, now the next one uh, is another story that sort of, uh, I don't even remember it breaking originally in the first place, so I was kind of surprised to see it here when I was looking back at uh, the year on UFO Mystic, and that's uh, Roswell Debris Found Analyzed, and this was uh, the beginning of May, May 1st. They had a press conference in Roswell, and I think the people behind the sci-fi thing said they found some debris, and they analyzed it, as the title suggests, and... Um, I, I don't remember anything else even coming out of it. So do either of you guys remember this story, and was there anything of note in it? You know, I mean, this is how bad 2009 was, folks, that we have to really dig for <laughs> stuff that <laughs> moderately uh, was fairly big news, I guess. Um, but, but, you know, that did kind of stick out to me that they would be having a press conference and stuff. And surprisingly, I don't even remember hearing it in the first place much less any follow-up to it. Personally, I don't, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I vaguely remember it like you, but that's about it. Yeah. Well, what I remember was that it was, I don't think it was all a UFO group. Yeah, and now everybody's going to, you know, they're going to come in and yell wrong as they're listening to the show. <laughs> I think they, re what 
it was people associated with UFO researchers found some stuff by looking in the area that uh, supposedly one of the crashes had happened or something had bounced off the ground and then crashed, you know, 100 miles away in Corona or something like that. Um, but as I remember, what they found was nothing really that amazing. They found some pieces of metal which weren't really that amazing. Um, you can find pieces of junk out in the middle of of uh, of uh, cattle country all the time. They found one interesting thing, which was some plastic. But and the plastic was I can't remember the name of the plastic, but it was supposedly developed in 1949. So what was it doing there in 1947? But still, I mean, it's terrestrial plastic. Yeah. And of course, you never know when if something is classified. You never know when it's developed, or they start to use it or test it, or something might go wrong, and pieces of it appear somewhere. You know, whatever the whatever the compound was, that plastic, maybe somebody was testing some something to do with uh, aerospace at that time, and that that plastic was part of it. It was left there. I don't know, or maybe it was just some junk that's been washed down from somewhere. Exactly. Know, yeah. Onto that property. So because it, it doesn't really prove anything to the point where you say, aha, this is, you know, this is something important associated with the Roswell incident. That guy, um, Nick, who was the guy that was at the uh, Chuck Wade? Was that it? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, twice when I was giving a talk, he stood up and said, well, what do you say about this? And he held up these, like, pieces of metal framed in this, uh, in the, in this frame, this little wooden frame with a plastic cover over it all labeled and everything, I, he said, well, what do you say about this if you think that they're not coming from other planets? I said, what does that have to do with UFOs coming from other planets? That's some metal you picked up somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, you know, it, we, we have to do testing on it, and we're gonna, it's going to prove that, uh, that uh, it's extraterrestrial metal. And it's like, well, I, you know, I said, you know what, come back to me when you get the testing done. And he got mad, sat down, and crossed his arms and wouldn't talk to me again. That I'm sure he's sincere, and I'm sure he really wants to prove what's going on there, but there's not often a piece of something from a sighting whereby you can analyze it and say that there's no way that this was made on, on Earth, because there's some uh, compounds you can only make in zero-G um, or through, you know, it, some kind of process where you can, uh, uh, what's that called? Well, you put two metals together, a... Uh, Alloy? alloy? Yes. Uh, there's there's certain known processes for making alloys, and then there's some alloys that, that shouldn't be, you know, aren't supposed to be uh, able to be made because just because of the because of the atomic structure of the elements won't allow them to do that. However, some of those can be done in zero g. So you know, if they find something in the middle of a ranch in New Mexico, buried far enough down with other things that are, are of that period, and it's something that could only have been made in zero g. Then you might have something, maybe. Yeah. Um, or, or either that, or or uh, two metals alloyed in a way that's never been done before that seems to have some kind of strange properties, um, like that uh, nitinol thing that was a big that was a big deal um, uh, last year. Exactly. Well, I guess you know it wouldn't be a year without a Roswell story, and it just goes to show you that at least there are some people still beating the Roswell drum here in 2009. So. I apologize in, in advance for getting all kinds of things factually wrong, <laughs> because I, I, you know, as you and Nick both know, I mean, you, you look at so many things, and, and a lot of things get jumbled up in your head. Um, the, uh, the the main point is that 
we're looking, what I was talking about was something that will prove that there's something unknown going on. Exactly, yeah. So far, all we've got is basically witness testimony, and um, that's about it, as far as I know. Yeah, well, witness testimony augmented by, you know, radar or photography or video or something like that. But that's so far, as far as I know, as far as the general public's concerned, that's all we've got. Exactly. Okay, I think we can leave that one behind because, uh, you know, much like Roswell, that's sort of a, a withering story. All right, the next story here, and this is literally like wraps up the first half of the year, so it just shows you how, how little was going on. This was uh, the first of two uh, impending disclosures that never came about. And uh, Surprise. I know, I know. And this is another great prediction that you got right actually here, uh, Greg, when you posted it. Uh, this was the claim that France was going to announce E.T. is here on July 14th, Bastille Day. It was supposed to be this big to-do, big announcement uh, in France to coincide with Bastille Day. And Greg's predictions were the announcement or press release will cautiously remark that there may be unexplainable flying objects in our skies or two, nothing will happen. And uh, I believe it was two. So, Greg wins a prize there for correctly predicting that nothing would happen. <laughs> you could have predicted that. Nick could have predicted that. Mac, God rest his soul, could have predicted that. Almost anybody in the UFO you know, community with any half a brain could have predicted that. Well, then, <laughs> I'll lump that in to another story that happened more recently because there's no sense in going over this uh, meme twice, and that's the Obama UFO non-disclosure of uh, November 27th. That got that was the same, essentially kind of the same story. Uh, it's going to be a big to do. He's going to announce it on the Friday after uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, I believe Michael Sala was the one that said this, so uh, I'm going to you know take him to task for these kind of crazy pronouncements. So um, you know, two big disclosure dates come and go in in the year. I don't know what to say really about this. It's disheartening that this kind of crap is still going on. That's really all I can say. Like, why is anyone even putting this kind of stuff out? Well, I mean, my view is that when you when we look at stories like this, you know, we, we all always need to remember that people in the subject, a lot of people, through no fault of their own often, because, you know, it is a long, historic, complex story, even just going back to 47, never mind, you know, pre-47 with the ghost rockets and the Foo Fighters and everything else. But if you look back at the last 60 years, what a lot of people forget or don't even realize is that, you know, Every few years, we get this story surfacing. The government's going to tell us the truth. You know, in other words, they're going to reveal the fact that aliens are here. Um, and you know, if you go back in the last 20 years, for example, there were rumours. <clears throat> excuse me, that you know, the Reagan, when he used to give his speeches, you know, talking about, I wonder what would happen if we were facing an alien threat. That was going to be the precursor to preparing us. You know, the the idea that the um, release of the FOIA material in the late 70s was going to do the same. There was another thing about, um, for example, uh, an early 80s, you know, the early 1980s with the whole thing with Bill Moore and the MJ-12 documents. Was this going to be leading up to something else? Robert Emenegger in the 1970s, the rumors about Eisenhower in the 50s, you know, Kennedy was on the verge of releasing it before he got shot, and that's why he was shot, you know, that rumor. We, we hear these stories in in different formats 
throughout ufology and unfortunately ufology doesn't always have a long memory and so when these stories surface again it's perceived as a big thing but it ultimately is a letdown in the same way you know Nostradamus predicts something's going to happen in 1999 it doesn't somebody else predicts something else is going to happen in 2001 and it doesn't um you know it's it's one of these things where people are always willing to give it the benefit of the doubt for the next time and you know it's sometimes it's worth saying well don't give it the benefit of the doubt anymore just stop you know that's the thing and at least like uh, amongst the people i know uh that seems to be the case where a lot of people i know are sort of rolling their eyes i'm wondering who out there actually is still believing this stuff but i guess it's Maybe neophytes and true believers, probably. That's about all. Well, a lot of it is also people are new to the subject, and that's, yeah. that's not their fault, you know. Unless you actually go out and you've got the money to buy a hundred books and a you know a stash of back issues of UFO magazine or troll the net for two weeks, you're not necessarily initially going to know all about these very very similar scenarios that have come before. But there, you can find them, and then you know your your view changes when you see these similar claims and predictions being made now. Yeah. Greg? Well, it's like, um, and I'm sure you're both aware of this book, the uh, um, When Prophecy Fails. Mm-hmm. What happened in that book, if people don't know, was that a group from the University of Wisconsin, I think, or maybe it was Minnesota, infiltrated a UFO group in the 1950s, uh, and the the uh, woman that was channeling the aliens said that the aliens were going to land on a certain hill when the world ended on a certain day in the, I believe, mid to late 1950s, and it didn't happen. And, you know, about half the people took off. They said, well, forget it. I mean, she was lying, and it didn't happen, and, or she didn't lie, or she was mistaken or something. Um, but a bunch of them stayed on because of the, they thought it was a test of their faith. And the, the, there's a quote I put in Project Beta from one of the uh, people that stayed on, and he said, "I, you know, I've I've uh, given up everything. I've, you know, I, I've uh, invested my whole life in this. I have to believe in it." Yeah. So it, it's one of those things. It's uh, it's like a faith. I mean, it's it's your your faith is tested, and then you wait for the next one, and you know it. In some weird way, I guess that's part of human, some parts of human nature, that you can have a belief system. It can be tested to the point where anybody would think it's ridiculous, but you, yet you still believe in it, and you still believe that you're going, your, your faith was going to be vindicated, because you have to after a while, because you keep saying it. Exactly, yeah. Like those people we, we met at Unarius uh, when I was out there in California, who had been out there for like 20-plus years running the Unarius building. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and you know, they're they're totally harmless. Michael Sala is harmless. Um, it's it I it's kind of silly. It's interesting, I guess, in a social, uh, in a psychological and social sense. But you know, as as a uh, a factor in understanding what the UFO mystery is, I think it's just it's a it's a minor sideshow. To me, it's a minor sideshow. Unfortunately, it gets a lot of play. Um, until the, until the media gets tired of somebody saying something over and over and over again, then they start to ignore it. I mean, it's the boy who cried wolf thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I made the point on another show, uh, Paratopia, that I was on uh, this past week, that when you get a prediction like that so horrifically wrong, as Michael Sala did, he should kind of be held accountable in the sense that at least tell us who told you November 27th, dude. If some inside source told me that there was going to be disclosure on November 27th and it turned out there wasn't, I'd be like... Here's who told me, guys, so don't blame me. 
Well, I'm sure whoever told them if it was an inside source is um, has got a perfectly good reason, as far as Michael Stahl is concerned, why he said that or she said that. Yeah. Meaning, oh, I really wanted to help you, but the political timing was wrong, or this happened, or that happened, but, you know, I, I really wanted to tell you it really was going to come out, but it was out of my control, and sorry about that, but uh, wait for the next one. And he will. That's for sure, yeah, yeah. You'd think if there was going to be disclosure that they wouldn't want uh, anyone blowing the whistle on it ahead of time anyway, so it's like, you know, if you really want disclosure, maybe you should just shut up and let it happen instead of fucking telling everybody there's going to be disclosure next week, and then they, you know... In your theoretical world, they probably get cold feet because everyone's freaking out now or something. So, yeah, if there's ever going to be disclosure on anything, it will not be announced. Exactly. That's mm -hmm. that's the disclosure part. So, you know, all right, we can leave those two behind as well. I think, Nick. Anything else you think to add to that, or or? Not really, other than the fact that you know, I think one of the important things that not just this discussion on that particular event, but some of the other things we brought up tonight kind of, for me, reinforces the the issue of why it's so important for people in, who are interested in the UFO subject and interested in learning about it to have a broad historical knowledge of the entire subject and what's gone on. Um, because, you know, when you see the, the big picture, as big as we can see it, as, you know, how we've had these parallels and with cases and claims and, you know, prophecies in previous years, we can learn a lot and, you know, not be jumping up and down like crazy people waiting for the announcement when we realize something similar has gone on 20 years before and 10 years before. So I think, you know, this is this is another classic reason why people need to acquaint themselves with the whole subject, not just the last, you know, five years or what goes on on the Internet. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. That wraps up the first half of the year. And uh, we move now into the second half and uh, the first story of the second half of the year, very sad one. Uh, one of three really major deaths. Of course, there were many other deaths uh, this year that we've already talked about and uh, others we're going to get to, but this one was a real pioneer and an icon in the world of esoterica. John Keel passed away uh, early July. I know both of you guys were hugely influenced by John Keel, I guess, so, uh, you know, we'll turn it over to, uh, we'll start with you, Greg. You know, what, what do you have to say about the passing of John Keel and his tremendous influence on esoterica? I think his influence was uh, was his theories, not really his research, because he did a lot of research. People just say, oh, he made all this stuff up. and he's like, No, he did. He went out and researched this. But he went out and researched it and formed his theories based on what he saw in the field and on his experience and not what other people had said. Mm -hmm. You know, and he didn't go read other people's books and you know, and and then go out with this preconceived idea about what he was going to find. Um, and plus, I I think he was quite a bit of a maverick. So I think no matter what he was going to do, as long as he avoided everybody else's uh, opinion and came up with a strong enough one on his own, that that was part of his goal. And you may say that's you know that disingenuous. I don't think it is at all. I mean, I think anything that happens to that that has some sense behind it and that that weight of research and that weight of of uh uh carefully considered uh theorizing is valuable um and yeah it did influence nick and i and a lot of people we know uh quite a bit and the way it influenced me his writing and his thought was to look at things in a different way and maybe even more importantly not really care what people think yeah, because he really didn't care what people thought. If he did, he never let on about it. 
And if you don't care what people think, it frees you up to, to uh, you know, do whatever you want and push things. It also frees you up to be insane, but I don't think <laughs> I don't think Kiel was insane. I think he was a little bit obstinate in a lot of things. Um, particularly the Fugo balloon thing, when he he, he insisted that the Fugo balloon uh, story in, uh, explained Roswell completely. I have a feeling he said that just to make people mad, um, because he thought it was unsolvable. So he said, "Oh, what the hell? How about this?" But um, yeah, the, the the way he thought about uh, the subject and what he brought to the table with a with the idea of the super spectrum. And, um, the idea that there is some force that's been messing with us for centuries and it doesn't have our best interests in mind and it uses deception and uh, trickery to push some kind of agenda was uh, very similar to some of the things that Jacques Vallée said. And they, they came at these things independently and uh, most people are either, you know, the, the, the reigning uh, uh, paradigm is there's people coming from other planets to visit us. And both of these people said, uh, Keel, I, like we say in particular, is that no, it's a force that's been with us forever. It, um, it knows how to interact with us on a deep level. And we should be aware of that, um, when we're looking at it and keep that in mind. Um, that's something that most people forget. Uh, at least people that are not really into the subject or have a really, you know, uh, very rigid belief system on it. I mean, I don't, I don't particularly believe everything Keel says either, and I don't think he's the be-all and end-all. I just think he's, uh, he is an ext- extremely valuable and intelligent maverick, you know. Nick. Well, I mean, broadly speaking, Tim, I, I would go along pretty much the same lines as what Greg said. I mean, from my own personal perspective, you know, I think like a lot of us, when we first get interested in, I guess, you know, Fortiana or Esoterica in general. Most people get into it at a young age and, you know, everything's sort of pretty much black and white then in the sense that, you know, UFOs are aliens from point A or point B, Loch Ness monsters are surviving Plesiosaur, Bigfoot's a giant ape, etc., etc. The more you dig into all these subjects, you find sometimes small, sometimes large um, inconsistencies or just plain weird aspects to the stories that don't fit comfortably in the straightforward flesh and blood nuts and bolts angle of the of the relevant subject and i think for me when i when that realization first hit me that hey hang on a minute yes there's a real mystery here or mysteries but it's not actually what it seems to be keel for me at least more than anybody else was the one who was sort of speaking in a way that i could appreciate that he understood and realized that you know, the, the, yes, something's going on, but don't force fit the evidence into one particular paradigm because that's the one subconsciously or unconsciously you want it to be. You know, it was more along the lines of him saying, here's the evidence, you know, this is what I think's going on, but it's a hell of a lot different to what everybody else thinks. And unfortunately, what happens is that very often somebody is coming up with new ideas, new views, you know, to not to put a bit of a pun on it, but they get crucified, you know. Yeah. And that isn't literally what happened with Keel. But he was kind of ostracized as, oh yeah, Keel's the guy with the weird ideas. We're the people who are talking about, you know, the more conventional alien scientists coming down to steal our DNA. Mm-hmm. Um and to me that latter angle is so 
way out of date and you know illogical when you look at the evidence but to me it's not certainly anywhere on the radar i think keel recognized something weirds going on did his best to understand it and probably people like keel valet terence mckenna got a lot closer to the truth than somebody else did who simply just collected more and re more and more reports and put them in a nice polished filing cabinet for the last 60 years and lovingly cared for their records. <laughs> yeah. You know, that hasn't done anything other than collate more reports. I think Keel understood that he needed to think out of the box to get the answers. I think he got some of them. I think he got some good theories that probably do point in the di right direction. But he obviously, like all of us, he didn't get the ultimate truth. But I think, you know, the most important thing is that he was like, which is what we should all be doing, is he wasn't willing just to go with the crowd because he was willing to kiss ass. Yeah. You know, he wasn't. He was willing to go out on a limb. And we have to respect him for doing that, you know, not just because he could, but because I think he genuinely thought that's what he needed to do to get the answers. Okay. Well, uh, we'll go to the next one here on the list. And this one didn't come from UFO Mystic, but uh, I found it by accident today when I was looking around. I found it kind of interesting, especially in light of what happened later in the year. And this was reported on a, in the Telegraph in the UK. And that was that uh, based on the reports received by the MOD UFO desk through July, they were expecting a record number of UFO sightings forecast for the rest of the year. So they, they expected 09 to be like a record-breaking number of UFO reports. I found that kind of interesting because then they closed the desk down <laughs> like six months later. It makes you wonder almost if it kind of ties into the whole FOIA discussion uh, that you were talking about, Nick, where it's just like maybe the weight of all this became too much for them. And they were like, we got to stop doing this because the numbers are going to keep increasing like every year. I don't know. I don't really recall any sort of genuine UFO flap in 09 in the UK. So I'm not sure exactly why there were so many reports, but uh, I found it kind of interesting. It was an invisible flap. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything to add to that, you think? Or, I mean, um, there's not, not much to really. say. I it's mean, just kind know, of... Ironically, it kind of goes along with the whole prediction angle that somebody made a prediction and fucked up. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is kind of weird. So, yeah, we don't know quite what to make of that. I don't recall... Like I said, I don't recall 09 being a big year for UFOs in the UK, so... Uh, other than bad news. So, uh, I'm not sure what... Sounds maybe like it was a filler article where they were just trying to create news, um, so they forecast this big number of UFO reports, but I don't know. We'll move on, I guess, to the next one. Uh, Dick Hall passed away in mid-July, another titan in the world of ufology. Uh, I already talked quite a bit about his legacy with uh, Stan Friedman, but it just sort of kind of goes to show you here two big icons of the field uh, passing away right around at the same time. It, just uh, that we're losing some of the big legends of, of the field in general, which is really uh, kind of heartbreaking and disappointing in a way. But at least now we can sort of remember their legacies and stuff, and we got to remember the people that are still around, too, that we haven't lost yet. Mm. What can you say about Dick Hall, Greg, uh, and, and you know his contribution to the field of ufology? Well, on the positive side, um, he tried to, and I think succeeded in some ways, to uh, show people that weren't interested in UFOs that it could be a serious sub subject for serious people to care about and to research. And on the negative side of it, I think he got stuck in the ETH thing and the um, 
and, and the, the kind of the 20th, maybe not even that, but more like 19th century science angle, whereby you know collecting a bunch of data would would uh, solve the problem, which I, I don't agree with at all because it hasn't yet, and it doesn't even look like it's going to. But it, you know, I I get the feeling he was real obstinate about that, and Paul uh, Kimball, who knew him quite a bit better than then I says that he wasn't as obstinate as, as people made him out to be. So perhaps I'm wrong. But um, yeah, in, in the in the in the large scheme of things, just getting the subject out there, um, trying to be careful with it, trying to make it respectable so serious people would look at it and come at it with the best minds possible. I you know I think he was probably one of the best people at that, and that's that's what we missed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I had tried to uh, get him on the show, but it never really uh, our paths never really crossed well enough to get it made. Nick, what about uh, Dick Hall? What what any sort of uh, any sort of input you want to add in here? Well, you know, I mean, there's probably very little input I can add to Greg. I I didn't know Dick Hall. I never met him. I never even spoke to him, emailed him, or had any exchange at all. You know, I've read a number of his papers and articles, reports, etc. I think the one thing that I would agree with. Greg is that, you know, as far as um, the subject's concerned, I think like a lot of people of Dick Hall's age and around that age who kind of grew up in the golden era of ufology and upwards, they found it difficult to move away from the classic kind of keyhole approach to the subject, as I call it, you know, the idea of nuts and bolts aliens, yeah. the government's hiding it, um, you know that that sort of approach, and and I understand that because you, in some way, I understand it. I don't necessarily um, sympathise. In fact, I don't sympathise with it because, but I do understand. You know, the fact that like with technology, some older people sometimes find new technologies daunting. You know, people go on about the good old days when something changes. Well, you know, that's that happens. That's life. Deal with it or don't. Um, and I think. Certain people, you know, within the subject who've been in it a long time and have now passed on, you know, died in the 80s, 90s, whatever, did find it difficult to kind of embrace new ideas when that for 40, 50 years, you know, their life has revolved around UFOs and the idea that we've been being visited by literal aliens from star system A or B. Yeah. Uh, nothing, you know, nothing wrong with having a belief system and investigating it, but, you know, don't do it at the expense of just totally ignoring or shutting out other possibilities. All right, we'll move to uh, the next story here. This one, I think, speaks to two things in the UFO field. A, the desperation for news uh, in 09, and B, the desperation for acceptance and validation from people who are into UFOs. And that was the Google UFO logo <laughs> craze of uh, early September for those folks who don't remember, uh, Google likes to change up their logo every day, and uh, one day they did a UFO, and everybody in the UFO field went crazy, and of course, uh, you know, plugged that into their belief system to interpret it in a variety of ways. Most often, that it was some impending sign of disclosure. So we we already kind of covered those <laughs> those folks, but duh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I did think uh, – I read uh, – I think Greg posted it on UFO Mystic, and he did say that it was a sign uh, of the UFO – of the paranormal or UFO phenomenon sort of returning to public prominence since 9-11. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, I guess, 
feel free to also chime in on sort of the observation that I made, just that for the people that are into UFOs, they, you know, sometimes a UFO is just a UFO, folks. It's not some big sign or, um, you know, some validation for you. It's just that the UFO is an iconic symbol, and it's used in a variety of different places. So, you know, you can't get too excited about that stuff. Yeah, well, for a lot of people, the UFO is like porno. I mean, you know, it's just like... It just gets them really excited, and if it, anything can anything could connect into that somehow, they'll they'll do something. You know, they'll they'll believe it because it, it validates their you know whatever their their desire. Um, I you know all of us are interested in this too, and you know we're just as interested, I think, as the people that are that are interested in the like I call it I, anything that has to do with UFOs that gets people un, you know unaccountably excited. I call UFO porno. Like <laughs> um, pictures and video, you know, um, it, it doesn't really have much value past getting people excited, but it looks nice and it gets them excited for a while. Um, the Google thing, is, as far as I could tell from the little research I did on it, is Google just, the people running Google um, looked at stats on, on searches, and they found out that UFOs and paranormal, I mean, well, specifically UFOs is either the highest or one of the highest, highest amount of hits on search terms um, was just UFO. So they had, to, I think a few days later, they had a, they had a UFO making a crop circle, too, I think, as part of their logo. Yeah. The two O's crop circles um, as part of a bigger pattern. But um, the thing about 9-11 is, uh, and I think everybody noticed this, and, and I mentioned it before, is just after 9-11, nobody cared about UFOs for about three or four years at all. It was just it was just death, you know. It was, the, the subject was effectively dead. In fact, most all paranormal stuff was effectively dead because people worried about whether they were going to die. Yeah. You know, it was much more important than, than playing around with, with funny ideas. Um, and, yeah, until there's some other big terrorist attack that is, uh, especially on this country, I mean, if it happens in Russia or something, who's going to care, right? UFO stuff will go on like it does, unfortunately, because uh, we're talking about American UFO study here. Right before 9-11, um, Miles Lewis, who's a friend of ours, was going to put on the National UFO Conference in Austin uh, on September 13th or 14th. So nobody could fly to the conference, and he had to, con he had to cancel it, Yeah, which was really, really bad timing, and it's was, it was really unfortunate for him because there were a lot of good guests. But, yeah, like I said, after that, I noticed that I, nobody wanted a UFO book. Nobody wanted to talk about it. There weren't any, you know, the magazines really didn't have a whole hell of a lot to say. Um, it was just, it was just not in the public consciousness. And as, as it, you know, as it recedes into the background of history here for the for the moment, people get more interested in weird, fun stuff. That that that's just, you know, kind of a, as most people consider it a mental exercise or something that's kind of a question that's interesting to consider. Yeah. Uh, you know, until something really important happens, and it becomes important for everybody. Um, which for the UFO subject, I don't think that'll ever happen, except as a subset of something else that happens that changes everybody at some point, either suddenly or gradually. Um, and uh, until then, it's going to be you know ruled by internet searches and and uh, people making making sighting reports and you know and uh, data collected and conspiracies about it. And it's just you know that, that's why I say. Um, 
a lot of the time that if you're interested in the UFO thing and you want to get an answer, you better get out of it right away because you won't. Chances <laughs> yeah. are you're not going to get any answer. Yeah. Um, you know, the big answer as to what causes it. But the, there's a real good chance if you stick with it and you're thoughtful about it and you truly are inquisitive and truly want to say something or make a difference, that, that you will. And, you, and in the course of it, you'll learn a lot about yourself and meet a lot of cool people and, and, uh, have fun. I mean, it's 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 just a fun thing to do. It's it's like a it's like a chess game you play for your entire life, you know. Yeah. Um, any- sort of answered the question, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> then he just turned it into how trashy UFO research is, which I like. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> what what about you, Nick? Anything to say? <laughs> anything to say about the uh, the Google UFO mania? Um, well, Greg pretty much said it all. The only thing I would kind of add and sort of expand a little bit is that I think, you know, when I look at this whole thing with Google and the UFO, you know, and the conspiracy theories, no, I don't think that, you know, Google's in league with the Illuminati and the Trilateral Commission <laughs> and the Bilderbergers to prepare us for the idea that UFOs exist. No, what I think it does show is, as you know, as Greg pointed out, with the number of hits on the net, it shows what a sheer cultural icon almost the ufo as an image is and you know whether it's google whether it's mainstream tv advertising anything that becomes like a part of popular culture and an icon gets used by whichever medium wants to make use of it we don't need to see hidden hands and sort of machiavellian things going on in the background unfortunately ufology and the people in it often ignore the easiest answer, which is often the correct one. They always go for the the complicated conspiratorial one. You know, it's unfortunate. Somebody in ufology dies. Well, what were they working on when they died, rather than the, taking note of the fact that they were 85? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. That, that's that's the thing. that I draw that analogy with the Google thing. So. Okay, yeah, yeah. It seemed like that. It seemed like uh, a lot of people just sort of jumping on it and then... Yeah. Fitting that. Sometimes, you know, a UFO, like you said, sometimes a UFO is just a UFO and you don't need there to be any other aspect to it. Exactly, exactly. All right, the next big story probably was, I'd say, in the top three, if not the biggest story of the year, which is kind of sad. Uh, the Socorro UFO uh, hoax allegations, I guess we'll call them. Um, and we'll pair that in with Lonnie Zamora passing away a couple, about six weeks later. I really didn't even look into too much of the whole story of the Socorro hoax claim just because it was like, this is a wicked old case and I don't really see the point in rehashing it too much. But I was kind of dismayed that it became such a huge story in the world of ufology because uh, I'd hoped that other people would have the same opinion that I did, but instead it became like the biggest story of the year, you know, which says a lot about what was going on this year and, and the field in general that that, you know, rehashing an old case is you know, the biggest thing going on in ufology. So uh, did we even come up to any conclusion on the Socorro hoax or did it just add more debate to the whole thing in general? Angela Joyner asked me about this and she started correcting me because I didn't get all the facts straight on it. So obviously she knew more about it than I did. Um, she, While well, she's a reporter, she looks into things. Um, what I got from it and from, you know, in a big picture way, as I read more of Bregalia's posts, I think I read all of them. But, you know, he, I think that his main reason for posting that was it was on a, a UFO iconoclast. The main reason was to piss people off. 
Um, and secondarily, he thought he had, I think he genuinely thinks he, he's not doing this just to piss people off. It's, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, that's a fringe benefit. Did I say it was the main reason? No, it's a fringe benefit. Um, but looking at his evidence and the, the things he brought up, the letter to Linus Pauling, the, uh, the supposed way in which the, the hoax was done by New Mexico Tech students in 1960, oh, damn it, when was Socorro? 66? Four. Four, thank Four. you. Uh, in 64, um, it seemed to get more and more ridiculous with things like, you know, certain hot air balloons, a rear projection screen. It's like, how do we get all this stuff out there and cool this? <laughs> And but the, the, the upshot of the whole thing was there were a lot of um, perhaps and could be's and you know almost certainly's and there was no statement from the person that actually perpetrated the hoax or the people that actually perpetrated the hoax saying yes this is what we did and this is how we did it and I think people are still waiting for that and until then I don't think it's a solved case and like I said before I don't care if it's solved or if it was a hoax I couldn't care less. You know, fine, it's solved. We, you know, we we can we can put that one away. I, I, it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not any sacred cow to me. There aren't any sacred cows, you know, for for anything, yeah. not just you, but for anything. So, you know, if he comes up with with some, well, basically with the person that did it, or somebody that knows the person that did it, it can explain exactly how it was done. I'd be more apt to believe that, you know, I'd be more apt to believe his uh, theory, his his story. Um, he certainly believes that he just thinks he has to get, you know, one more piece of information or five or six more or whatever. And he's, you know, the, the little uh, back and forth I've had with him on it, he's he's not nasty or anything. He's, he's seems like a seems like a nice enough guy. He just see it just seems like he um, really wants to uh, put this one to bed based on some stuff that he's heard and a few things he's uncovered. Now, it may convince him, but the important thing is to convince everybody else, to convince his peers, and maybe even more importantly, to convince somebody that is, you know, doesn't even have a stake in the matter one way or the other, uh, like me or Nick or somebody. Like I'm, I'm sure Nick doesn't care if it's a hoax or not either, do you, Nick? No, I mean, my view is that, you know, if you're looking at the UFO subjects, we need to look at the evidence and the cases and try not to look at them with a belief-driven head. But unfortunately, a lot of people within ufology, you know, do hold highly regarded beliefs about not the subject, not just the subject in general, but specific cases. And I think with, with Tony Bregalia's investigation of the Socorro case, I think one of the problems that faces ufology is that unless somebody comes up you know, with the hard evidence, and I do mean evidence that proves it, you know, that would stand up in a court of law, it won't, it doesn't matter because the believers will continue to believe. You know, it doesn't matter if the Air Force tomorrow found in an old aircraft hangar a mogul balloon that said found in Roswell in 1947. Yeah. The believers will say that was somebody in the Air Force counterintelligence office found an old bit of paper and an old typewriter and they did that deliberately to dismiss Roswell. So in other words, unless hard definitive proof of a hoax comes along, it actually won't make any difference to the people who hold rigid, firm beliefs about the case. It won't matter in the slightest. 
And that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at all angles to see where the case leads. And if it's a hoax, then dismiss it. But unfortunately, the history of ufology is replete with cases which are obvious hoaxes, yet they, ha they still attract massive amounts of supporters purely and simply because the person is so entrenched in the belief system to, to some extent that they want to believe it and they've invested so much time in it, perhaps even money, that it cannot now be anything else than what they want it to be. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm up for anybody, you know, digging into a case and seeing where the evidence leads. And if, you know, they honestly believe it's a hoax, that's great. But without the evidence, no matter how good the argument is, it, it is a case almost of, well, what does it mean to ufology if nobody believes it? Yeah, I don't want to believe it. So. <laughs> uh, Nick brought up something interesting, or made me think something interesting. Well, you know, I did say I think he did this just to piss people off, or, or part of the reason was. But the thing well, is, I don't that's think that personally. But... That that's important to get people to question their belief system, and, to, and to see when it's challenged, to see how they react to their having their belief system challenged. I think that's a valuable part of having that uh, of Tony Bergalia writing that piece. Yeah. Yeah, no, I actually, you know, me and Greg tend to agree on a lot. So one thing I actually just do disagree with is I actually don't think there was a, an angle of pissing people off. But you know, I mean, that's that's what we're doing here. We're we're debating. But you know, broadly, you know, I, I think um, hoaxing, outing a hoax, you know, it's almost like a losing battle because people don't want to hear that. Yeah. You know, and people should be open to all the different scenarios. I think he's happy people got upset because he thinks he has he thinks he has the goods. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that the fallout of that, which is valuable at least to me, is that it shows it shows that uh, people are so entrenched in their belief systems they won't even listen. Mm. Sometimes that's true. Well, what do you think of the whole notion that just like it's kind of sad that that was that. That was like the biggest story of the year, a rehash of a 45-year-old case or something like that. You know, I mean, obviously it was a down year for UFO news in general, but still, like, well, you know, we're kind of spinning our wheels here a little bit. Well, I think, you know, people, r rightly or wrongly, and I think wrongly, assume that if there's a UFO presence here, that every year it should get bigger, better, and more significant. You know, my answer to that approach is, is why. You know, if there is an intelligence here and it has an agenda, it doesn't necessarily follow that that agenda follows the way we kind of view things from our own, you know, personal perspective and our own sensibilities. You know, what I'm trying to say basically is that we put our assumptions and viewpoints on scenarios and a phenomenon we don't really understand and we get pissed off and confused when it seems to go away for a while because that we're applying our approach to something, you know, expect it to get bigger or better. What's the next development going to be? Well, you know, that, that's, that's, I guess, the human approach. We're just dealing with something that's distinctly non-human. So why get pissed off if it goes away or we don't understand how it reacts? That's that's what it's doing, what it should be doing. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's an interaction. You know, it has been since the beginning of time. The interaction, I think, is more important than, uh, and who we are is more important than what that, may be more important than what that thing is. And whatever that thing is, 
I think it considers that more important too. The interaction and our perception is 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 far greater part of the equation than, than most people want want to admit. Yeah, and then uh, Lonnie Zamora passed away. Is there much we should say about that other than he was the you know the driving force behind the soccer case because he's the uh, the witness of the whole thing? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was. You know, without without Lonnie Zamora, there wouldn't be a case because there wouldn't have been a witness. Well, there were other witnesses, I think, but I, uh, it would have just been kind of a uh, – saw something flying through the air um, over the highway. I think there were a couple other witnesses around the same place at the same time. Um, there are all kinds of attempts to impugn his uh, honesty, most famously with uh, Phil Klass saying that he had uh, – Zamora had uh, conspired with the – mayor of the town council to, to create a hoax to, so that they would get more tourism there or something <laughs> ridiculous sounding and I don't know what he used to back that up of, uh, most most assuredly nothing except his, you know a story he made up that he liked um, the, the guy did see something weird um, he saw it clearly enough with his glasses to know, you know for us to know that it probably wasn't a balloon. I, I've never been able to buy that balloon explanation because it, the the flame shot out the bottom. A balloon flame doesn't shoot out the bottom; it shoots up. Yeah. So the only argument with that was, oh well, he couldn't tell because his glasses were knocked off. Like, <laughs> well, I don't know on sight, but the, 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 there's so many factors in that case that that he reported and repeated, you know. Uh, again and over and over to make me think that he honestly reported what he saw. What he saw, I don't know. But, um, yeah, any attempt to, like, impugn his honesty or his uh, integrity or whatever is just, it's, I don't think that's the important part of the case. The important part of the case is to figure out what he saw, and if Tony Borghelia can figure it out, good for him. And if he can't, then it's it, it's still a mystery. And um, I think Zamora stayed. He he stayed in Socorro until, until he died. He was that's he's buried there. I do kind of find it interesting that he's sort of an example of uh, what used to be kind of a trend, but doesn't seem to be anymore. Where you know, for lack of a better term, like the witnesses to these events became celebrities. Uh, you know what I mean? Or became so well known and tied to the event, sort of like the whole Kenneth Arnold thing. And nowadays, we don't really sort of tie people into the UFO events anymore. That's an interesting observation. You're right. Yeah, I don't know why or, or what, what have you, or if it's just because the best sightings we have now are mass sightings, so we have so many people, or or what. But it seems like that's something that's from a different era. Well, it's because I think people have a lot more input now, so something can take your attention away a lot quicker. Um, and when those were landmark cases because, you know, there might have been 10 other cases that are better than that that happened the same year. But they didn't get reported, and nobody really investigated them, and it didn't make the national news and all that. Yeah. Um, now, you know, you, you have all those 10 cases reported, and, and Lonnie was, Zamora would have been lost in the middle of it, I think. Well, maybe not lost, but I don't think it would have, you know, because of communication, it's uh, the, the speed of communication, like we talked about before, um, it's, it's, it, it didn't get lost in the shuffle. I mean, it was the, it was the star for a while, and it still is. Yeah. It's like, you know. Who, who remembers uh, 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 some second-rate Hollywood star that's probably in 400 films? But you'll remember Gary Cooper because everybody knew about that. Maybe that's a bad example, but you know what I'm getting <laughs> at. There you have it, folks. That does it for the first half of this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. As noted, 
Part 2 will be coming at you in the not-too-distant future, hopefully within the next 48 hours or so. I'm going to put a rush on it as soon as I get this episode posted to Banal of America. I want to give huge thanks, of course, to Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, the UFO mystics, for coming back on the show and giving us a tremendous amount of time to discuss 2009 as well as the decade of the aughts. Once again, their websites are ufomystic.com. That's got stuff from both of them there. Radiomysterioso.com is Greg Bishop's outstanding podcast, Radio Mysterioso. And nickredfern.com is the website for Nick Redfern, where you can find linkage to all of the various branches of esoterica that he has researched. Since we're pressed for time, and this is a two-part edition of BOA Audio, we're going to skip out on listener feedback this week. I have been insanely busy this entire month, unbelievably busy. I've got so much email piling up in the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag that I've got to just sit down and collate this stuff, look through it, and figure out what we're going to read next. I know I teased Keith's email at the end of last week's episode. Stay tuned. We'll have it on part two of this lengthy conversation with the UFO mystics. Until then, if you want to get a hold of me, if you got some thoughts on the first half of our year in ufology, it's pretty easy to get a hold of me. There's three ways. Let me go through them really nice and quick for you. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. That's the email address. Or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. That'll put you on your way to getting in touch with me. And the final method is the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F. E.com. We've been getting a lot of new members joining up in the last few weeks. want to thank all the cool folks who have begun planting seeds at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com. Check it out. Those are the three methods, email, contact button, and the official BOA forum, the US of E.com. Any of those will get you in touch with me Quite simply, and I love hearing feedback from the BOA Audio listeners, good, bad, or ugly, send me your emails so I know what you think of the program, and perhaps we'll include it on BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, we thank the BOA staff. You know them, you love them. They are the infamous and esteemed writers for Banal of America. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolan, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. As noted at the end of our holiday special, they're taking some time off to recharge their batteries, enjoy the holiday season, and ruminate on some new columns for Banal of America in the new year. I've got a feeling they've got some really cool stuff in the pipeline for you in 2010. As we say week in and week out here at the end of the program, if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at banalofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And if you're a newcomer to the website, the URL for that is www.binnallofamerica.com. Check it out. I hope everybody out there had a great holiday season. I know I did, and we are still kind of in the midst of the holiday season here with the wrap-up of 2009. And as such, first I want to thank all the great folks who made donations last week. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate it. For the folks who are still on the fence, if you could make a donation to Banal of America, it would be 
a tremendous help to the entire BOA enterprise. How do you do that? That's pretty simple. You go to Benalla of America or the BOA Audio Archive page and you click the PayPal button. No donation is too small and all donations go towards Benalla of America and BOA Audio to keep the audio series and the website up and running, freely available and commercial free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. I already previewed part two at the beginning of the show, but for those folks who are creatures of habit like myself, let's do a preview of part two of our 2009 Year in Ufology discussion featuring the UFO mystics Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. This is going to be posted at BOA hopefully within the next 48 hours or so. And in this concluding installment of our discussion, we're going to remember esteemed esoteric researcher Mac Tonys, who is a good friend of Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, and he passed away this past October, tragic loss for the esoteric community. We're going to talk about the cancellation of UFO hunters, the Vatican endorsement of ETs, the UK MOD UFO desk being shut down, and the Norway spiral. That'll wrap up the 2009 stories. Then in the second half of part two, we're going to cover the end of the decade and some of the noteworthy trends that have come out of the last 10 years. First, we're going to look at the 2000s and how they stack up against the other decades as far as UFO research goes. Then we're going to look at the rise of exopolitics in the last 10 years, the displacement of ufology by 9-11 and ghost hunting as the perceived most popular field in esoterica, the rise of cryptozoology into a quasi-mainstream level, and how the Internet shaped the world of esoteric research. That'll be coming at you on BenallofAmerica.com, hopefully very soon. We want to roll it out to you as soon as possible within the 48-hour window or so. There's always the chance that it'll get to you on Sunday morning, but I'm willing to bet it won't get to you any later than Sunday evening. So stay tuned to Benall of America this weekend, and you'll get your hands on it for sure. If you're listening to this a week, two weeks, three weeks, months afterwards, years afterwards... You have no idea really what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> so uh, just go down your playlist and click on part two, and you'll be able to listen to that right now. For those folks who are listening to this in the now at the end of 2009, stay tuned to BenallOfAmerica.com for part two coming at you in the not-too-distant future. And on that note, we close the book on the first half of the 2009 Year in Ufology Review with Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. Hopefully you dug it as much as I did, and as always, folks, thank you so much for your support of Benall of America. The BOA Audio listeners are the best. You are awesome. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. Since I'll be coming at you after the New Year holiday, I hope you all have a very happy New Year. Be safe out there. Don't drink and drive. Don't do anything crazy or silly. Just enjoy the turnover here from 09 to 10. It's going to be fun, I think, for everybody. And... Come on back to Benall of America after you've shaken off your hangover and pick up part two of this conversation with UFO mystics. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.